Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Well, good morning. Our gospel reading, it's seven verses. Uh, is it seven? No, it's 12, I think, verses taken right out of the middle of one of the most remarkable stories told in the Bible, the raising of Lazarus. It's, it might be, it strikes me as the most emotional scene in all of the Bible. When Jesus arrived in Bethany where Lazarus lived and died, he walks in to this cacophony of anger and confusion and grief. And Jesus joins right in with it. In John chapter 11, verse 33, we're told Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's the way most English translations put it. Here's a more literal translation. Jesus was seething with anger and shuddering with distress. And then it says he wept. But be careful. This wasn't written by middle-class white Americans who gently shed tears at funerals. This was written in a Middle Eastern culture where you wailed at funerals. Don't think of Jesus crying like you cry when your loved ones die. Think of Jesus crying like my Ethiopian friends cried at the death of their son. It was shrieking. Jesus is wailing. At the death of Lazarus, Jesus rages with anger and he bawls with grief. Why? Because that's what we should do when we're near death. Death is our enemy, it's not our friend. This is the appropriate response to death, to what death does to human life, to the destruction that it deals out to God's creation. Jesus is shaking with anger at Satan and his arrogance. Jesus is no stoic deity. He is filled with a white, hot anger and a broken heart that such a thing happens. And in the story of Lazarus, in John chapter 11, all that emotion, it brings us up against what death really is. To be truly human is to refuse to be reconciled with death, to protest against it to recognize it as the destroyer of life that damages even the living long before they die. Death is an earth-shattering tragedy that is worthy of our anger and sadness and grief. Death, to put it frankly, it is our enemy. It is vile. It was worthy of Jesus' anger. It is the only enemy that escapes Jesus' command to love your enemies. 
It's the only one that's not covered by that. So Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Unfortunately, that wasn't enough because Lazarus died again. We know that he did because if he was alive today, we would know it. If there was a 2,000-year-old person alive today, you got to believe that, that kind of stuff isn't hidden. So where is Lazarus now that he died again? There's a scene at the end of J.R.R. Tolkien's wonderful book for children, The Hobbit. Thorin, the king of the dwarves under the mountain, is dying and he's reconciling with Bilbo on his deathbed. Bilbo's a hobbit. Um, Hobbits are different than dwarves. Their beards aren't very long. You should know these things. And the long-bearded one, Thorin, the dwarf who's dying, says to Bilbo as they reconcile, farewell, I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until the world is renewed. This is a remarkable statement of the Christian view of death. Tolkien, who wrote this, was a devout Christian. When we die, if, we've, if we have placed our faith in Jesus, when we die, we go to heaven and we rest. My mom right now is resting in heaven. This is how the book of Revelation puts it in chapter 14, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, they are resting from their labors. So my mom's labor to breathe with COVID virus that killed her. She's not struggling for breath anymore, right? And all the emotional labors she carried through life, right? She's at rest from those, right? All the wounds of love that you accumulate as you live in this world. When Christians die, they rest. But our souls resting in heaven is not the end of the story. Remember Thorin's speech, farewell, I go now to the halls of waiting, waiting. Heaven is a waiting place. Heaven is a waiting room. I go now to the halls of waiting. That is, if we started saying instead of heaven, the halls of waiting, it would help us a lot in understanding what the Bible teaches. I go now to the halls of waiting to sit beside my fathers until. Heaven is an until place. It's not the end of the story. It's a way spot. That's the picture the Bible paints. The great hope Christians have is not that we get to go to heaven when we die. I'm glad mom is resting. That doesn't satisfy me though. I want to hug her again. I don't want to float around in some disembodied bliss with my mom in the ether. That's not satisfying. The great Christian hope is not going to heaven when you die. That happens, but that's not, that's not the, the, the hope that we aim at. The great Christian hope is a two-stage post-mortem reality. First, those who belong to Jesus go to be with him. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, to be dead is to be with the Lord. But then one day Jesus will appear as heaven and earth come together in a great, fresh act of new creation. And that will be the moment of the resurrection of the dead. The moment mom is waiting for. The moment I'm waiting for. The moment Christians wait for. 
Resurrection is the abolition of death. Giving God's people new bodies to live in God's new world. That is the great hope of Christianity. Last week, Wilson walked us through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first paragraph, verses 1 through 11. And he showed us that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the rock bottom reality for Christianity. Jesus' resurrection is the anchor of Christianity. The resurrection of the dead is the hope of Christianity. And this week we see, if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We see in the second paragraph of this chapter, verses 12 through 19, that while it's one thing to believe Jesus was raised from the dead with an immortal body, it is another thing to believe that when we die and our bodies have decomposed or been turned to ash, it is another thing to believe that one day Jesus will appear and God will send a shockwave of resurrection throughout the entire cosmos and it will kill death and it will rescue not just our souls but our bodies from the grip of death and we will wake up. We will have new bodies to live in a renewed world. In our passage this morning, we see that the resurrection of the dead in the future is the hope of Christianity. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Notice verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, some of the Christians in Corinth were denying the future resurrection of God's people. But notice in our scripture, in the, in the verses that follow, Paul gives us five catastrophic results of trying to calibrate a Christianity that is only anchored in Jesus' resurrection and isn't pulled forward by the hope of our resurrection. Paul says there are five dire results of that kind of belief. Number one, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You can't get one without the other. The whole possibility of resurrection is based on God's power. If God is capable of creating us out of nothing, he is surely capable to reassemble us out of material decomposition. Look, this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is built on two presuppositions. One, that God is the creator of the world. And two, he is the God of justice. He is the justice bringer. Death is an intruder, a violator of God's good world. The creator's answer to death cannot be to reach some sort of detente, some sort of agreement. It cannot involve any compromise whatsoever. Death must be. And in the Messiah, it has been and will be removed from God's creation. Denying the resurrection of the dead knocks the bottom out of the Christian faith. 
We see this again in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So that's the first disastrous consequence of trying to configure a version of Christianity that forgets or downplays or denies the future resurrection of the dead. Number two. If there is no future resurrection of God's people, then number two, this thing we do on Sunday mornings, this thing I'm doing right now, this gathering around all the money we've given to build this this room to set this up where there can be the proclamation of Christianity, the preaching of Christianity, this thing, it's all in vain. Proclaiming the gospel And Sunday sermons and telling our friends and family members the gospel is useless and we're liars if there's no future resurrection of the dead. This is what he says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. If we can't be raised from the dead with new bodies that are immortal, unsusceptible to death, if that is the case, if that cannot happen, if God is not powerful enough to do that, then he couldn't have raised Jesus from the dead. And if God isn't interested in doing that, there is no point to God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. Every story of Jesus' resurrection connects it to the new creation, not to heaven. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead so that our souls could go to heaven when we die. If that was the case, God would have just raised his soul from the dead. Remember the word resurrection in the Bible. It's a word that means something very specific. It, 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 It means that someone who is dead is raised to life, not as a ghost, but with a new body. That they return to an embodied life, not completely unlike the one they had before. The word resurrection in the Bible, this is talking about life in the body, not the immortality of your essence, of your spirit without a body after you die. Resurrection is not figurative. It's not allegorical. It's not metaphorical. It is a literal word. Resurrection does not refer to some part of of the human that doesn't die but goes on to exist everlastingly. No, resurrection is about a going on out the other side of death and whatever lies immediately after death. It's about going through all of that into a new transformed embodied existence transformed and changed in an act of creation that's only analogy is the original act of creation so that the new body is no longer susceptible to death or decay. This is why passages like Romans chapter 6 verse 9 tell us that Christ once raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. Death and decay, these are imposters. They spit in the face of the good creator, God, and they will not have the last word. The creator will make a new world and new bodies proper to that new world. If there is no future resurrection of God's people, then we are wasting our time on Sunday mornings. 
That's the second unacceptable consequence of trying to have a form of Christianity that denies the resurrection of the dead. Number three, it's not just that preaching and sharing the gospel is useless. Faith is useless. Verse 14, the last half, your faith is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We're stuck. The point of the resurrection of Jesus is not simply that the creator God did something remarkable for one solitary individual. The point of the resurrection is that in and through Jesus' resurrection, the present evil age has been invaded by the age to come. The age of restoration and return and covenant renewal and forgiveness. An event occurred as a result of which the world is a different place. And human beings have the new possibility to become a different kind of people. This is predicated upon the close link throughout scripture between sin and death. If God has overcome death in the resurrection of Jesus, he has broken the power that introduced death. The power of sin. Number four, the fourth consequence of trying to have the Christian faith, but denying the future resurrection of God's people. The fourth consequence is that all Christians who have already died are lost. Verse 18, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're irretrievably lost. They do not have a future life worthy of the name. And Christianity is an illusion. It is a pious lie that veils our, us from the terrifying truth that we are powerless and alone. We are stuck at Lazarus's grave. And we should, like Dylan Thomas's poem tells us, do not go gentle into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. A future without a body, even in a blissful spirit life in heaven, is not anywhere on the scale of worthwhile. Non-bodily survival after death is not salvation. Because it, it would mean that we are not rescued from death. Death got us, and it gets to hold part of us. It would mean that those who are asleep in the Messiah without the prospect of resurrection, it's not worth it. Number five, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then those of us who are Christians, more than any other human being, should be pitied. This is verse 19, if in this life, only we have hoped in Christ. We are of all people are most to be pitied. But wait a minute. I mean, this is a tricky one. This, this is the one that took me the longest to wrap my mind around. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, doesn't that simply put us back in the same place as everybody else? It doesn't. It doesn't because to be a Christian is to suffer. 
It's to struggle. It's to miss out on a lot of fun. To be a Christian brings suffering that other religions don't bring. If there was no resurrection of the dead, then our suffering for the sake of the future is for the sake of a future that's not going to happen. Christians are called to a life of embracing death. Suffering through selfless service to others, not seeking our own advantage or pleasure. This is one of the hardest things to teach children and teenagers. Yeah, you, to be a Christian is to give a bunch of stuff up. And don't try to candy coat it. It means missing out on some good things that their friends get to pick up on. No sex outside of marriage. Don't get drunk. Don't get high. For most people, not everybody, but for most people, all three of those things are fun. And they can get you places in life. Lay your life down for the needs of others. If there is no resurrection, this self-denying style of life makes no sense. Those who follow the example of Jesus and Paul are chumps missing out on a lot of their fair share of life's rewards. This comes up big time in verses 29 to 34. Paul did not experience enough natural enjoyment to make Christianity worth it. Look, those of us who so stress the earthly benefits of Christianity might not be paying enough price for Christianity. We might be forgetting what it's like for some to be Christians. And I want to close by pointing out how this, wrapping our mind around this fifth consequence will help us in the very confusing moment we're in with regard to gender and sexuality. Those of us who are deeply, romantically, erotically attracted to others of our same gender Make no mistake about it. Christianity calls for you to give up something that everybody else gets. And it requires of you a level of suffering in denying yourself. That those of us who are heterosexually oriented, I just, I don't think we can fathom it. And it's not enough to say that teenagers don't get to have sex and, and unmarried people don't get to have sex. The fact that the possibility is out there is removed. And I think it is not worth denying yourself sex if there is no future bodily resurrection. You see, because the bodily resurrection means there will come a day where you get to experience all of the pleasures of your body completely at peace. 
that God's going to heal that conundrum. He's going to heal it by giving you a heart and a mind and a body that all line up with the good paths. I think the resurrection of the dead is the only thing worthy of the price we pay for saying no to the world's sexual ethic. And those of us in the trans community today, some people in the trans community suffer deeply from gender dysphoria, the persisting emotional and personal discomfort that you experience because your own internal sense of gender is different from your body's birth sex. This is a complex personal issue that calls for massive empathy and understanding. And those who struggle in this area with all the confusion it brings and the fear and the humiliation and the sad fact that there is no reliable scientific data available to help cast light on what's going on here. I cannot imagine how so incredibly painful it must be. And I want to say, please hear this. Gender dysphoria is not a sin. One day in the new creation, you will have a body and you will be at peace with it. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's what Jesus is offering. And the suffering you're going through now, it will be redeemed. If you are trying to navigate confusing gender stereotypes, if you're reacting to the rigid stereotypes of masculinity and femininity that our culture offers that leaves little room for any degree of gender atypicality, your suffering is not unnoticed by God. I hope it stops being unnoticed by the church. It will be redeemed. Christians who daily live with this gnawing pressure, there will come a day when God will sort it all out. And those of us who are searching for identity and community to cope with life's challenges, and these challenges may be completely unrelated to gender, but in the LGBTQ communities, you found an emotional home and a place of safety. The LGBTQ community offers you the love and the acceptance and the identity that you long for. I am sorry that the church has failed you. I am glad that you've found love and acceptance. And I hope our church continues to grow in our ability to accept and to love even when we disagree. We have got to learn. I can accept you without agreeing with you. And I hope that you accept me without agreeing with everything with me. Now look, I, 
I hesitated to do this here at the end of the sermon because there's so much more that has to be said about the trans issues. Um, I, 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 I did a big, huge lecture on this back in October the 30th of 2022. It's on our website. So if I've just opened up a set of issues that you're like, wait, 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 then I encourage you to go listen to that. It's title is Male and Female. He created them, Jesus, Gender, and the Trans Community. Tilik, um, Helmut Tilaki was one of the most famous preachers in the world in the 50s and 60s. He had been a Christian pastor, theologian in Berlin during World War II. He was once asked, what is the difference now looking back 20 years on the churches in Berlin during World War II that now have a vibrant faith in those that are dead? And he said, the difference is the churches that are living with vibrant faith today are the ones who in the pulpit preached and engaged with the complexity of the German assaults upon humanity. The only way our church is going to be a church with a living faith is when we take passages about the body and we look at the most complicated body issues facing us today and we try to look at them through the lens of the gospel. And the most complicated issues of the day, some of them are the issue of homosexuality and trans. And we have to take passages like this and we have to see how they help us to listen and to love. The body matters. The body matters so much. It is at the root and the fruit of the gospel. If we have hope in this life only, we are of all most to be pitied. Our hope is in the resurrection of the dead. When God heals all things, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, natural, all of it. Let's pray.